the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground for Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those of you who haven't heard the show before, hey, welcome. Welcome to the club. Uh, This show is in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion, and today we're going to talk a little bit about history. And, you know, Pat Fauci, if you're listening, you may not want to listen to this interview because I think you're going to disagree with it. But, you know, if we can't argue the Civil War, what can we argue in a polite society? But we're going to have General Ty Sedgwell on talking about Robert E. Lee and me, a Southerner's reckoning with the myth of the lost cause. Now, in in the meanwhile, if you have any state planning questions, and here, you know, Connors and Sullivan, a state planning elder law firm, and that's what we try to do. We try to save assets for the next generation, paying the least amount in taxes, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and... If you have any questions, Michael, where do you email a question to us? Questions can be emailed to us at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. Those can be questions about estate planning, questions about the show, or questions about the firm in general. We look forward to hearing from you. Or questions about the Civil War, if you want. Absolutely. The Civil I War we have enough people we can get the answer yeah. to. Absolutely. And, you know, what this is one of the... Younger attorneys at our office, and I don't think you're allowed to say younger, I guess, but, you know, what the hell. Uh, Lloyd. Lloyd, where are you from? Hi, everyone. I'm from China and the southeast part of China. Okay, and where did you go to law school? So I actually went to law school back in China for my undergraduate. That's called a Southwest University of uh, Political Science and Law. I also went to a law school here in the United States. I went to uh, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, so, um, well, let me ask you, what questions have you, you know, picked for us tonight from our email list? Absolutely. So we have two questions today. So the first one is, dear Mr. Connors, I am 58 years old and in good health. I have an adult daughter. When should I start thinking about getting a will? So this is Catherine from Staten Island. Okay, and this is a question that, you know, I answer, I, I think, fairly often. Everybody should have a will. You know, because you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, a will covers a lot. A lot of people say, well, why do I need a will? Because everything I own is in trust or joint with my daughter, so I don't need a will. But at the same time, something could happen. You're in a car accident. There's a lawsuit. After you're gone, you pass away in the accident. You pass away a year or two after the accident. There's money coming in. Who's going to get that money? It's a lot easier for your daughter if she's the executor under your will. So, And, and you never know what's going to happen. And again, does your daughter have children? Do you have grandchildren? Well, what if something happens to your daughter? How are you taking care of the grandchildren? That's one of the things we can do in a will. And, you know, occasionally, let's say you you have some mementos that you want to give to a nephew or niece. Again, you can do that in your will. But everybody should have a will. You think you can have everything planned, but it doesn't always work that way. And I've been doing this for, you know, 40 years. And if, if you come into our office, I can give you, you know, 20 different examples of people 
We could do a whole show, really, on, on bad things that happen when you don't have a will, which, Michael, maybe we're going to do that in a couple of weeks. But there, there's so many bad things that can happen if you don't have a will. And again, if you have everything joint, you have everything in trust for, uh, maybe you won't need the will to probate the will after you're gone, but it's as good as a backup. It's a, it's a good backup plan to have a will, and everybody should have a will. And again, you know, even if you do, I said if your daughter had children, maybe you want to take care of her children. Well, what if your daughter doesn't have children, you and her go in an accident together? Do you want mayhem, or do you want those assets to go to those people that you would like those assets to go to? So again, everybody should do a will. The sooner, the better. You can always change it, but have something in place. And and one of the things when we're talking about a will, which a lot of people, you know, it doesn't come to mind until we start talking about it. What if something happens to the, let's say you have one person named in your will. What if something happens to that person? You have a daughter. Does she have children? Okay. Do we have a plan in place to take care of her children? That's one. Two, she doesn't have children. Well, maybe the assets would go to the state if you and her died together. And obviously nobody would like that, whether it's a charity, whether if you have nephews and nieces, maybe give it to your nephews and nieces. That's up to you. It's not for us to write your will. It's to take your wishes and put it into writing. But again, everybody should have a will. You can always change it. You know, a will is a very changeable document. You can change it on a moment's notice, but everybody should have a will. And I really can't, you know, say that enough. You know, uh, you know, we're talking about we have, you know, today we're going to have General Sedgwick, you know, on our show talking about Robert E. Lee. Lloyd, do you know who Robert E. Lee was? Not really, but I think I know him as a general in the Civil War. That's a pretty that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> you know, because you know, usually when I the last couple of weeks, months, I've been asking people, you know, who do they you know, do they know some of the people that we're talking about on our show? And the answer a lot of times is no. So at least we got, you know, <laughs> You know, half a answer there. So, Lloyd, what's your second question? So the second question is that my mother passed away very suddenly. She didn't have a beneficiary listed on any of her IRA or 401k accounts. I'm her only child, and my father passed away 10 years ago. What can I do? So this is Kathy from Brooklyn. Okay, I'm going to assume, which, of course, you never really want to assume anything. We're going to assume that your mother was not married since your father passed away 10 years ago. If, if that's not a correct case, then maybe we have to reevaluate if she did have a husband. But assuming you're an only child and she wasn't married when she passed away, the assets in your mother's name will eventually go to you. But you would have to go to court. And right now, you know, court is not the optimum place to be, surrogates court, whatever county you are, because the, the courts are not fully open. Things are not being processed in a, you know, the way they used to be. And listen, even in the past, it was bureaucracy and red tape. And ordinarily, you'd want to avoid that if you could. I mean, we don't have a problem. You're going to get the assets if you're an only child. But you do have to go to court. You have to prove you're an only child, which is not too hard. You just need a couple of other people to sign affidavits saying you're an only child. Hopefully, the death certificate list you as the informant. And... You know, the papers go into surrogate's court, but the problem right now, I don't know how long it's going to take to come out of surrogate's court, and I don't think anybody does. I think, you know, as of, you know, the end of the year, surrogate's court wasn't really open in a lot of counties. What's going to happen next week or the week after that? I don't know, but that's why you want to plan things out. You want to have a good estate plan. You want to get to the point where you don't have to go to court, and those assets in your name in this case, your mother's name, what have you, was beneficiary. And, you know, it goes through the estate. You lose some tax advantage on retirement plans. But, it, you know, it's just stressing again. Everybody should have a will first. And two, you want to put a plan together so you don't have to go through court after the person dies. But it's not the end of the world if there are assets in mom's name alone and she didn't have a will. You're going to get it. It's just going to take a little bit of time and maybe all the tax consequences haven't been dealt with in a proper manner with no will. But at the same time, you're going to get all the assets. Be patient. Put your papers into court and see how long it takes to, you know, to get those assets out. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough takes one of the questions, you know, that's directed toward the radio audience or from the radio audience. 
And he asked that question on his show, which I understand his times are going to be changing over the next couple of weeks. So we'll figure it out. But I think he's going to be on uh, 7 o'clock Monday through Friday at 9-7 The Answer and 3 o'clock Monday through Friday on WMCA 570 The Mission. So take it away, Kevin. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you you're going to get your question answered here on Kevin McCullough Radio. And uh, just to do that today, Mike Connors joins me. Uh, Dear Mike Connors, my wife and I live in Brooklyn and we own our home. I heard that when a person dies owning real property, the person who inherits the property gets something called step-up in basis. Can you explain what that is? Thank you, says Daniel. Mike? Yes, okay. So let's say for the sake of argument, these people paid $50,000 for their house 30 years ago. It's worth a million dollars on the day the survivor passes away. The heirs can sell that property for a million dollars. Capital gains are wiped out by death, which is what we call the step up in basis. The property value, as far as tax purposes, steps up to the date of death value, which is, well, in my example, a million dollars. The kids sell the house for a million dollars. They put a million dollars in their pocket. There's no capital gains tax, and there's no estate death tax in New York as of today under $5,850,000. Well, so it's important to know all of those uh, parameters and, of course, the data, but it's also important to understand how it applies. And, friends, if you've got any questions about something just like this, that's what Connors and Sullivan excels at answering. So why don't you call them, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. You can also uh, send them your own question at uh, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com because he'll answer those questions here on Kevin McCullough Radio and also on his own broadcast Saturday mornings starting at 8 o'clock on AM 570 and FM 102.3 The Mission and Sunday mornings starting at 11 on AM 970 The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors and Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors and Sullivan, plan now for later. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Milia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of, of Ask the Lawyer. You know, a lot of you know on this show, we've had more than a few generals on the show, and we've had a 
more than a few doctors, PhDs of history on the show. But I think today we're combining it. I think it's the first time we've ever had a guy who was a general and a PhD. Ty Sedgwell, welcome to Connor's hey, Corner. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure to be here. Okay. You, you got a book coming out, Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. Obviously, we know what the book is about, but we don't know what the Robert E. Lee we know about, but who's the me? Well, the me is a, uh, a born and bred Southerner who grew up on a steady diet of Lee being the greatest, not just the greatest, per, not just the greatest general, but the greatest human. I, I say that on a scale of one to 10, as a kid growing up, I would have put Lee at an 11. And despite the fact I went to church every Sunday, I'd have put Jesus at five. So <laughs> I, I thought Lee... I thought Lee was the greatest. So that's how I grew up as a Southerner, uh, went to Washington and Lee University and grew up in Virginia and Georgia and then joined the military. And I've been in the military for just retired after 36 years. And in the and in the Army, I was an armor officer for many years and then became an academic at West Point, where I served almost 20 years. And uh, while I was serving at West Point, uh, I had this sort of epiphany of that maybe the guy that I worshipped really wasn't the guy that I should have been worshipping. And it all came back to the reason that that the Confederates uh, fought. And so I, that's really who I am. I've been a soldier, a scholar, and a Southerner for uh, uh, always a Southerner, scholar for the last 20 years, soldier for 36. Now, when I went to grammar school and we were taught history or high school and when I was taught history, we kind of were taught that, that Robert E. Lee was the greatest general in, in, in American history. And, of course, when you think about it, it's kind of funny because Robert E. Lee fought against the United States of America. And lost. So he's got a big L on his forehead anyway. You know, we, we Americans like winners. So, yeah, so he fought against so that. Really, if you think about it, then uh, Robert E. Lee fought against it was a was a colonel. Well, he was one of the, the highest ranking uh, people in the army at, when he resigned in 1861 uh, and went immediately, even before his resignation had been accepted by the U.S. government, accepted a commission first with the Virginia, uh, Virginia and then with the Confederates and fought against his country uh, to destroy his country uh, that he had given many oaths to support. And if you think about what he did then, is he killed more U.S. Army soldiers than any other enemy general in our history. And he did it for the worst possible reason, which is to create a new country based on uh, human enslavement in perpetuity. Now, can you just go back for the audience? You know, let's say at the very beginning, where Virginia's at the the edge of secession or whatever, and Winfield Scott, w what's the dynamic, and how is Lee offered the generalship of the U.S. Army? Well, even before that, before he's offered the generalship, uh, Winfield Scott is asked by uh, the uh, several people in the cabinet, several uh, senior ranking civilian civilian masters. Hey, do you, do you think Lee is going to stick with the United States? Do you think he's going to stick with the home team? And Winfield Scott says. I know he's going to. He is he is true as steel, sir, true as steel. And then he was offered a, a colonelcy, a colonel in command of the 1st uh, U.S. Cavalry, which is still on active duty today, a very storied regiment, which would get him a colonel. And there were only there had only been one brigadier general in uh, among West Point graduates up until 1861. So this was a huge deal. And he accepted that colonelcy three weeks before he resigned. Then Winfield Scott says, I think you need to be the commanding general of the entire United States forces. And, oh, my gosh, wouldn't that have been amazing? And, and he says, no, he doesn't. And he takes uh, Winfield Scott's offer, mulls it over, and then and we can talk about his decision-making a, a little bit, and says, no, I am going to resign my commission and go with my home state, which he is only with for a couple of days, and then goes with uh, Virginia. But even then, he actually resigns his commission before Virginia – actually takes uh, the full – before they do their uh, uh, referendum on secession, he resigns before that. So he, he resigns. And, and I think we should talk about why does he do this. And what I argue is he did this because of his undying belief in, in slavery. He was the largest owner of, of human beings in the U.S. Army in 1861. Uh, and he had benefited from enslaved people for his entire life uh, and became a rich man because of it. So, uh, and, and, and the other thing we should know is that in 1861, there were eight U.S. Army colonels uh, uh, from Virginia by, in, in, by May of 1861. 
Seven of them remain loyal to the United States. And one and only one uh, chose to fight for the Confederacy, and that's Robert E. Lee. That's, a, that's something I didn't know. Uh, you know, I think one thing we skipped a little bit. Who was Winfield Scott? Oh, gosh. Old fuss and feathers. Uh, Winfield Scott. What a great question. Love this guy. So Winfield Scott uh, had been a general officer for 47 years. He was the hero of the War of 1812, the hero of one of my favorite campaigns to teach at West Point, uh, which was uh, the the Veracruz campaign during the Mexican War, where he took this force. Of, Lee was uh, one of his captains in and went really from the Gulf of Mexico all the way to Mexico City with this impossible mission to take Mexico City, uh, leading his logistics trains behind and captured it. So he had been commanding general of the army for over 20 years and was and came up with the Anaconda plan, the original plan to defeat the Confederates during the Civil War. So he was in his late 60s. He was morbidly obese, but had the best mind of anyone in the army and one of the best minds anywhere. And he was the hero of the U.S. Army in, in the antebellum years. And a Virginian, might I add. That's what I was going to ask you next. Where was he born? He was born in Virginia, lived in Virginia, and his, he said uh, the, the Confederate uh, a Congress or someone from the Confederacy came and asked him prior to the formal secession, uh, General Scott, would you be interested? And we're thinking about giving you a commission in the Virginia uh, militia or in, in the Confederate Army. What do you think about that? And he said, it is my he said, no, absolutely not. It is my duty. And which he then underlined my duty to suppress insurrection, my duty to suppress insurrection. Why do you think there was a difference between Winfield Scott and Robert E. Lee? They, they were similar. I mean, they both were in the Mexican War. They both were. Well, no, Scott wasn't a graduate of West Point. I'm sorry. But they were both in the military forever. Right. I, Scott was actually a great supporter of West Point. In fact, at West Point today, there are eight barracks named named after great generals in American history. One of them is after Winfield Scott, even though he's not a West Point graduate. Interestingly, one is named after Robert E. Lee, uh, even though he is not a general in the U.S. Army, only made colonel. But I think that the reason why the difference is, is Lee's undying belief in, in racial control through slavery. Let me give you, a, give you two, two uh, bits of evidence to support that. The first is, is that in 1857, his father-in-law, uh, the adopted grandson of George Washington died. And Winfield Scott, who's commanding general of the Army, gave Lee two years, more than two years, almost two and a half years of paid leave, paid administrative leave to go tend to the three uh, plantations that they ran. And, and during that time, Lee was a plantation owner, an owner of 200 uh, enslaved people who he managed ruthlessly. And his father-in-law never split families apart, recognized uh, enslaved marriages. Lee did neither of these. In fact, broke apart almost all but one family that was at Arlington. And so he, I argue, saw himself more as a Southern slave owner by 1861 than he did an army officer because he had spent so much time as a uh, uh, as a slave owner and plantation owner in, from 1857 really to the beginning of 1861. I mean, you're saying that because this I've never heard before that Robert E. Lee was a ruthless slave owner, that he divided families, he sold husbands from wives. Yes. And, and there's another uh, actually a, a very a clear account from a, a formerly enslaved person named Wesley Norris. And in 1857, when Custis died, he said uh, that I want to free all of my um, enslaved people within five years. He also said, I want to give ten thousand dollars. Uh, to each of my three granddaughters, Lee's, Lee's uh, daughters. And Lee said, listen, I can't do that. I've got to keep you enslaved as long as possible. He could have sold land immediately. And, and that's what he ended up doing after five years is he had to sell land to pay that dowry for his daughters. He could have done that immediately. He chose not to do that. And so the, the enslaved people on, on Arlington and the other two, Roman Coke and White House, which were the other two plantations, thought that they were free immediately. And two uh, one man, his sister and a cousin escaped into Maryland. They were caught, uh, spent two weeks in jail. They were brought back and Lee then ordered them whipped. And uh, the, the overseer would not do it. So he brought in sort of a like a, a guy who did this sort of thing and brought him there, chained him to the whipping post, which which he they had at Arlington. And, and as, as the enslaved person said later, which had verified accounts of 
lay it on well, and they gave 50 lashes for the men, 20 for the women, and then Lee ordered brine water poured over their backs. So we, we have really good uh, evidence of the, uh, that he was um, not just a, uh, the largest owner of enslaved people, but also a cruel slave owner. You know, of course, that's also a, sort of in a, yeah, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. But you know, you're, you're make, making a point here, obviously, because, you know, I kind of grew up that Robert E. Lee was a saint, you know, he, he, he was the greatest American in American history next to George Washington. Yeah, and I, on a scale of one, I told you, scale of one <laughs> to ten, Lee's an 11, I put Jesus at a five. So, yes, I thought the same way, and I was raised on the steady diet. My first book growing up, my first chapter book was called Meet Robert E. Lee. Uh, and I, I mean, I just infused every part of my aspect. Every part of my life was that he was great, the Confederates were noble, they lost, but they lost honorably. And much of this um, was created, you know, and now he was, don't, don't get me wrong, Lee was incredibly popular during the Civil War, and he was, I believe, a talented uh, general who kept the Union, uh, or as I like to call it, the United States, I, I try not to say Union too much, kept the United States off balance for much of the war until he ran into a better general, which is Ulysses S. Grant, who I, I think is the finest, one of the finest people to ever wear Army Blue in our nation's history. So Grant was better. Uh, but Lee was a, a talented general. But we forget, and what I forgot growing up, is why did he fight this war? And he fight this, fought this war to create a slave republic. And after the war, there be, especially after he died in 1870, there became this myth, the myth of the marble man, that Lee was, in fact, the greatest human that ever lived. And it, and it was a way for the white South to... Um, to one, deal with this catastrophic loss that they brought on. They they sowed the wind, they reaped the whirlwind, which ended in ended slavery. And so they had to find new ways of racial control. Part of that was Jim Crow laws. Part of it was lynching. Part of it was Confederate memorialization. Part of it was making Lee the greatest human ever lived. So it's part of a system of uh, of white supremacy that was created as part of what's called the lost cause myth. And Lee became sort of the marble man of that myth. Now, you, you mentioned something else. I mean, again, when I went to studied history in high school, I mean, the general consensus was that Lee was the better general. Grant was just, you know, had overwhelming numbers. And that really was it. Grant was the, you know, w was not as good a general as Robert E. Lee and that Robert E. Lee was the better general. He just didn't have as much manpower and, and resources behind him. Yet that seems to have changed over the last 20 years or so. I think you're exactly right. And I think people remember that part of that lost cause myth of Lee was to make Lee better. You had to make Grant bad. So there's a famous speech at my own modern Washington and Lee uh, by Jubal Early, uh, Lee's bad old man, really a nasty cuss. And he mm -hmm. said it started this, this myth. And he said, listen, Lee was like the towering, like this towering pyramid on the pyramids in Egypt. So in other words, he was on flat soil, but was this towering pyramid of a man. And Grant was like a pygmy uh, on Mount Olympus. So that, that it, and it, Grant is the butcher and the drunk, but Lee had greater, at a greater, um, higher casualty rate than did Grant. And remember, Fort Donaldson and Henry, Shiloh, um, uh, and what was the other, and, uh, and Vicksburg. Victor. These are great, great victories. I mean, amazing victories. And then he did defeat Lee and his, the numbers were never as great as, as Lee said it was. I mean, at the end, Lee's famous General Orders Number 9, at the end of the war, says we were defeated by manpower and materiel. Well, there are a couple things to remember. One, why does the North have more manpower? One, where do immigrants go? They go North because are you going to compete with slave labor? No. Also, every time the North, and I always go, the United States came further South, the enslaved, which the South thought would be a benefit to them, left to go join the colors. There's zero black Confederates, and there's a reason for that, is because of what they fought for. So Lee, Lee was not only fought, he, not only was he beat by a better general, he fought, his cause was so awful. Let me ask you something. My son wanted me to ask you this question because you, you talked about Jubal Early. Uh, did Lee encourage Jubal Early in, in some of his attacks, let's say on Longstreet or before or after the, uh, during the war or after? Uh, well, I think that 
you know, I think there's a couple of things to think about there. The, the, I mean, Lionel Longstreet was absolutely a spectacular general. I don't think there's any question about that. And, and it probably had, had a great sense of strategy. Uh, Jubal Early never, when he was given independent command, I don't think he could really handle it. it was be, and Sheridan finally found that out and, and just destroyed him in the Shenandoah Valley. I think what's interesting is how they go after the war, where Jubal Early blames, blames uh, Longstreet for Gettysburg. And that's just not a fair it's just not fair. It's just not true. Lee is to fault for Gettysburg for doing that suicidal charge and for not adhering to what Longstreet wanted to do, which is to, you know, to to fight a defensive fight, get the go on the offense, but then fight defensively, which is what he told Longstreet he was going to do and didn't do. But early, remember, early, uh, as as Fitzy Lee said about early and uh, was that he went to war begrudgingly. He was a unionist through and through. But once he drew his saber, he could never find the scabbard again. And early left the United States for four years. And when he was in Canada said that, I think I hate the Yankees so much that I have no doubt that I could scalp a, a Yankee woman and her child without winking my eye. So he, man, he was a, a mean guy and controlled the narrative of the war really until the 1960s. Can you explain the audience? I mean, Lee and Longstreet at Gettysburg and, and what happened after the war between the two? Oh, yeah, great. I, I mean, well, first of all, there, and one thing to remember there, you know, there are there are statues across the of South and even in, in elsewhere to Lee, hundreds of statues and memorials to Lee. How many statues are there to perhaps the second greatest commander in the Confederacy in the South Longstreet? How many how many statues to him? Zero. And let me let this, so let's explain why. So at, at Gettysburg, um, Longstreet does not want to get into a fight at that place because the, the U.S. forces have the high ground. They've got such a great position there uh, up on the up on Cemetery Hill um, and and Little Round Top, Big Round Top. He says, no, we have to go around them. we can't fight them here. But Lee gets his blood up and insists on attack both on day two and the third day, which is Pickett's Charge, where he just his forces are just slaughtered. In, in one of the worst slaughters of the war, which I grew up believing showed his nobility and defeat. So after the war, Jubal Early and the Virginians, and Longstreet was from Georgia, blame Longstreet and say he didn't really want to attack and attacked too late. None of these things are true, but they use him as a scapegoat so that Lee does not have to take the blame. And also after the war, Longstreet becomes what unfairly called a scalawag, which I thought was one of those curse words that company, you could say imply company as a child growing up in Virginia. Scalawag was a Southerner who went with the Republican Party with the Northerners who were coming down south during Reconstruction. And he fought with a biracial coalition against white terrorists in New Orleans. And so he was called the great Scalawag because of this. So Southern white Democrats then just expunged him from historical memory. And the only statue of Longstreet that I'm aware of is a statue that was put up at Gettysburg which is it's really a horror. It's a terrible statue um, put up after the Killer Angels book and the movie Gettysburg. And it's there at Gettysburg to this day, put up in the 1990s. So Gettysburg this shows you this, how powerful this lost cause myth is. And I grew up thinking Longstreet was the goat when, because of all of these historians of the South. Remember, the South won the fight for the narrative after the war. We often say the South loses. I mean, the, the losers uh, lose the history. In this case, the South won the history. Why do you think that was so? Yeah, it's a great question. So why did why did the South? Well, one, the South had defeat on their. They had the most the, the worst defeat of any Americans ever. I mean, it's a huge defeat. They went to war to save slavery, and in fact, what they got was the opposite. Sixty percent of the wealth of, of of the South is destroyed, and the South lays lies in ruins. You've had armies from Sheridan to Sherman laying waste to the entire countryside. And after the war, how do you deal with that and still create racial control? So remember, that's what they want to do. Deal with their defeat and maintain racial control. And the only way to maintain racial control is through violence. And so after the war, there is this violence that white Southerners use through the Ku Klux Klan and other parts of, and, and sister organizations to ensure that black people lose the vote, which they had during Reconstruction. Growing up as a kid, I thought Reconstruction was a failure. The failure was the federal government could not maintain the, the, the military presence to stop violence against black people. And that, that violence 
eventually ensured that the North just gave up. And it meant that the South then won the right to disenfranchise black people wholeheartedly. And remember, South Carolina and Mississippi had more black people than white people in 1877. So they had they were finding ways to do racial control. And the reason they win is because there are groups like the United Daughters of Confederacy that burn books that don't say the right thing. So my textbook in Virginia in the 1960s and 70s was written to enforce racial control. And it says all these lies in there that slavery was good. So that's another one of the lies that they purport is that slavery was good for the white person and good for black people, too. Uh, Lee is a general. Is he do you spend a lot of time in your book? Your book's not out yet, right? Am I correct on that? No, no. It comes out uh, January 26th, right? January 26th. Okay. So does your book go into Lee as a general, as a tactician? Uh, just a, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I say, because it, it really, and let me tell you the story that comes with that. I get, we In the Army, we do these things called staff rides, which is that we go visit battlefields to learn the lessons of the past. And it's, it's, we do Gettysburg and Antietam, and I did Antietam for years and years and years. And I would go walk the ground, and Lee was a great hero there. And McClellan, of course, was the GOAT. And, and the way Lee moves his forces across the battlefield, you know, is, is just is astonishing. He does a great job of this. And I always miss, though, the what, what the two things that, that today sear my soul, and, and that is treason and slavery. So I don't spend as much time. I, I say that he was great at Chancellorsville, and he brought the, the Confederates back from almost near defeat at the Seven Days Battle in 1862. So he was and, and, and was and did an amazing job as a tactician until he ran into somebody far, far better in Ulysses Grant. But I think we tend, I did as a young, as a younger scholar, to focus on the tactics, because if you do that, you take out the purpose of the war. And the fact that Lee fought against his country. And I think that we as historians for years and years have looked at the tactical part and it allowed us to uh, overlook the parts that were more troubling. Now, I think you committed another sacrilege. Uh, You said Longstreet was the second greatest Confederate general. What about Stonewall Jackson? And and I think uh, Jackson, well, first of all, what a a weirdo. I mean, that guy was just, he was a strange, (laughs) strange dude. Uh, and, you know, he was upset at one point that uh, that he wanted to get his army pikes. So he needed pikes, you know, long uh, lances, like 10 foot long wooden with uh, with a with this the sharp thing on the end. So he did really well at, at Chancellorsville, no doubt about it. But boy, did he do terribly at the seven days battle when Lee just couldn't count on it. And yes, he did great in the Shenandoah campaign. Um, but. So, so I think it's it's a mixed bag on him. I, I think that he had great strategic talent or, or tactical talent. I'm not saying that, but Longstreet was there throughout the entire war and gravely wounded. Came back from that, and part of it is that Longstreet died. And hey, Seth Cadets, tell ask me about this. You say, hey, hey, sir, uh, listen, what would have happened if Longstreet, if, if Jackson, Jackson was at no. the Battle of Gettysburg? Yeah, what if Jackson was at the Battle of Gettysburg? And I said, oh, easy answer for that. He would have smelled really badly because he was dead, and and that's the other part we don't know <laughs> is so John. Okay, right, he was dead. Yes, and and uh, Reynolds at Gettysburg, Reynolds at Gettysburg, one of the great great generals who was killed at Gettysburg, and yet we don't make a fetish of him because he was killed in eighteen. He he was one of the great generals of the war, McPherson in eighteen sixty four. So we have all there's only the what ifs on the Confederate side. But there aren't the same what ifs on the U.S. side. Okay, now, General, what's your website? Where can people learn more about you? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, thank you so much for saying that. So, uh, my website is tysigilly.com. Um, uh, I'm sure they can get it on your site. S e i d u l e. And I've got a book coming out from St. Martin's Press at the end of the month, on the 26th of January. And uh, I hope to help uh, the Army as well to change the post names. We have 10 posts named after Confederates, including Lee, that were named in a period of, of uh, deep segregation and racism. So I'm hoping that the Army can change those names. But uh, it's Robert E. Lee and me um, uh, coming out 26 January from St. Martin's Press. You know, I, I that's another question I have. You know, why like Fort Hood, Texas, Fort Bragg? I, you know, I don't think like Fort A.P. Hill. Why, why was that done? And 
you know, again, they fought against the government of the United States of America. But why was that done? Uh, so it's a great question. So I have a chapter on this. I have a chapter on why all the things named after Lee at West Point. And the reason is, is that we were a segregated army at that point, And we wanted to uh, only people that could vote in the South are white people. And so we wanted to make the white Southerners, particularly segregationist congressmen, happy. And so we named them after a real mishmash of terrible generals. I mean, Fort Polk is one of the worst generals on either side of the war. Uh, I mean, and the only good thing he and you know, the only good thing he did was to catch a cannonball in the chest, nearly cleaving him in two and die a glorious battlefield death. That's how he helped the Confederates. So. So, yes, we named these in, in, during World War One and World War Two as a, a sign to white Southerners uh, that that we agree with them now. And we named them after terrible people of war criminals uh, and terrible tacticians and traitors. I mean, remember, we named these posts after people that killed U.S. Army soldiers. So I have a chapter in the book that talks about why we named them, who we named them after. And there, there are a number of things that we we have a, a, a monument on Arlington, you know, the great uh, cemetery, uh, which has an enslaved woman on there, fat, overweight, uh, kind of an Aunt Jemima, a mammy who is taking a baby from her Confederate master, and it's meant to show that slavery was, was a positive good for the enslaved. And that's on our federal, our, our most important cemetery in America. By the way, you may want to tell the audience what the history of Arlington was since we brought it up and we're talking about Robert E. Lee. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. <laughs> so Arlington is, uh, is, is owned by uh, Robert E. Lee's uh, father-in-law. And when he dies, it becomes his wife, Mary Custis Lee, and Robert E. Lee's. And Lee is there up until he commits his treason in 1861 and then leaves. And they start burying people there haphazardly. But there's this glorious neoclassical mansion uh, overlooking uh, the, the, the District of Columbia in Arlington, Virginia. And in 1864, Montgomery Meigs is having to deal with all of the, the, the huge number of deaths from Grant's army in the Overland campaign fighting against Lee. And he starts to bury Confederate, uh, to bury uh, U.S. soldiers, to include black soldiers, in this, in this area. And apocryphally, it said that close as possible to Lee's house so that they would never again, Lee could never get this property again. And, of course, the U.S. Army had to occupy because if the Confederates had it, then they could shell Washington and force them to leave. So it becomes a great cemetery, uh, the greatest cemetery. There's over 400,000 American heroes buried there. And then starting in uh, the early part of the 20th century, they, they bury Confederates there with their own headstones. In fact, every Memorial Day, Confederate flags go into Arlington around those Confederate, Confederate graves. And it, and it was trying to bring white America back together in the early part of the 20th century. But it did it with the firm belief of putting black America under the heel of the white boot. And so it's, it is a, it is like so much of our history. Great. I love my country served it and defended it for, for decades, but we have to be honest about who we are. I think the only way that we can become better as a nation is to be honest about who we were. So the name of the book, Robert E. Lee and me, a Southerner's reckoning with the myth of the lost cause General Sedgwell, thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. Oh, Mike, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, I think you I think you brought in a lot of ideas that uh, you know our usual Civil War historians have not um, n- not brought up in the past. I mean, again, we're still at the same point where uh, we, you know we you you know Bud Robertson. He would come in here and uh, mm-hmm. you know Robert E. Lee was yeah. a saint. I know because because every part of his background and you know I have chapters in the book on on why I felt like this and it was absolutely I, I mean I went to Washington Lee University because I wanted to be a true Virginia gentleman and Bud Robertson uh, he could not get beyond the fact that you know when you say remember he and my treason for slavery and as a U.S. Army soldier for three decades you don't get to choose when your country needs you you fight when your country needs you and. His father believed that. George Washington believed that. Every other Virginia colonel believed that, and he didn't. And I don't. I just think we've given him a pass because we grew up that way. At least I did. All right. So we look forward to the book. We look forward to seeing you January thirteenth at the Civil War Roundtable of New York. Uh, Michael Great. will give the information for those of the audience who want to log on that day. And, and thank you again, General, for being on our show. 
We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Thanks again to General Ty Sedgley, you know, about his talk about Robert E. Lee. And I, I you know, I find it interesting because this is a different slant on Robert E. Lee than we're used to having at the Civil War Roundtable, which our next meeting of the Civil War Roundtable, which is going to be done virtually, is what, on January 13th, Michael? That's right. It's going to be January 13th at 7 o'clock p.m. Okay. And how does somebody uh, how does somebody hook up for the meeting? If you'd like to join us for the meeting, just email us at info at connorsandsullivan.com. That's info at connorsandsullivan.com. We'll make sure you get the Zoom link ahead of time. And bear in mind that Zoom links, it doesn't have to be online. You know, you don't need a web- webcam. You don't even need a computer. Oftentimes, you can just dial it up via a cell phone and or even a landline and then participate as though it were a conference call. So for those of uh, for those listeners who are interested but are worried that, oh, well, you need all this newfangled technology, no, you actually don't. Okay, so again, how do they contact us? Info at connorsandsullivan.com. Info at connorsandsullivan.com. And they can call at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Tell them you're interested in the Civil War. You know, we won't hook you up with an appointment with some attorney. <laughs> Tell them you're interested in the Civil War. Call 718-238-6500. Now, Beth, I expect... You know, like we have a lot of differences of opinion from our historians that have been on this show and at the Civil War Roundtable. And the general here is a little extreme in his condemnation of the conduct of Robert E. Lee. Do you have any comments that you're kindly of partly uh, an unreconstructed Southerner? (laughs) I don't. I find it extremely interesting. Um, I know we're going to talk to him um, more about his sources and and how he's come to the conclusions. I would like to read the book when it comes out. Um, Remember, my family, during the Civil War time, no one owned slaves. They were conscripted to fight for the Confederacy and for ancestral lines split away from the Confederacy. Um, and one actually fought for the Union. So um, 
and and what's interesting to me is looking back with all this, you know, my grandmother never spoke about the war. Granddaddy did, but more from a, a military tactical what his his um, grandfathers had done. But my mother, their child, was lost cause all the way. Um, and my grandparents weren't that way. So it, it's just very interesting. My mother, the romantic, the lost cause, it's, that's what I grew up with. My father never said a word about it. You know, I, I think he didn't want to upset mom. Doc kept, his, remi- Doc kept his opinions to himself when he right. felt it was tactically proper. <laughs> Of course, that, you know, like your father's grandfather fought in the Union Army and actually right. trained, from what we understand, he actually trained African-American troops in the Union Army to fight the right. the Southern Rebellion. That's right. Um, and and Dad had a completely different perspective. And mother's mother's family that had been mother's grandfather, great-grandfather, I mean, that the McKibben group had been the the there were eleven siblings and they pretty much were split down the middle Union Confederate, um, but the ones that were Unionists, they they were strong, solid Unionists. And after the war, um, you know, you, people try to come back together, um, but their children, the Unionists children many were in politics and um and it became convenient to gloss that over to an extent am i right i think some of them it just it you knew you didn't have an alternative listen the lost cause people took over my ancestors before the civil war had been quick you know, they were never secessionists. If anybody wants to see Free State of Jones with Matthew McConaughey, and I'm Wait. sorry I forget the director, that has, a, you know, a, a part of where you, some of where your ancestors were from back in the Civil War. Now In Mississippi. Right. Now, I mentioned Kevin McCullough. Kevin McCullough, I just learned, is going to have a new schedule starting January 4th, which is, you know, Monday. He's going to be on 970 The Answer, Monday through Friday at 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Monday through Friday. In the meanwhile, we're going to be at the same time, same stations next week. Thank you for joining us and Ask the Lawyer. And we'll see you next week again at the same times and stations. And Happy New Year. Happy 2020 New Year. is Happy finally over. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs>